You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, excited. We, we only have uh, two more sessions, uh, this one and the next next week, and then we'll be done with chapter 2. And can you believe it? I mean, we're like flying. I mean, this is exciting. Uh, 60 episodes, and we'll, we'll finally get through chapter 2. This is awesome. Uh, but Ephesians chapter 2, again, we've been walking through this whole series where looking at what God has done between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, what I want to do is just kind of read this last section that we've been in the kind of, we kind of started last time, uh, but going from verse 19 down to verse 22, and uh, we'll be focusing in that section. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, <clears throat> Paul writes this, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. Uh, Last time we were together, we were talking about the fact that Paul, again, has been walking through this contrast of the Jews and the Gentiles. And these two groups absolutely hate each other, but God has brought them together and made them one. And as we get into verse 19, it's interesting that he's saying, you, speaking of the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and foreigners. So, hey, you're always outside. You're always pushed against the wall. Hey, you never had access. But no longer are you not strangers and foreigners any longer. He says there are three key pictures, is, is the language I've been using, but there's these three things that have been taking place in you. So again, you're not pushed outside. Hey, you're not out, uh, out of the reality of all that God's doing. Paul says <clears throat> that you are citizens with the saints, that you actually have full rights of the citizenship of heaven, which isn't, a, isn't that a great thought? That here is the kingdom of heaven, and I have, it's not just that I'm an alien. I'm not just a foreigner. I'm not just a, an outsider who's living in the land. I'm actually a full-blown citizen with all the rights of citizens in the kingdom of God. And not only am I a citizen, Paul says, I'm actually a family member in that household. So God has a family, and and I'm not a servant, I'm a son. Uh, I'm not just one who cleans up, you know, the dishes after, after the meals, that I actually get to sit down at the table. Why? Because I'm a part of the actual family. And then Paul uses this language of a building. And I mentioned last week that we wanted to focus on the building specifically, and uh, which is what I want to do. So let me just read this section again. It, uh, it's verse, starting with verse 20. Uh, but look what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 20. He says, We've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the entire building, tightly framed together, is growing into a temple in the Lord. So Paul is using this language of a building. I find it fascinating as you look at kind of the, if you step back and look at the overarching tone of Scripture, it seems like there are three key things that Paul, sorry, not Paul, God is doing throughout all of Scripture. It seems like, and if you want some terminology, it seems like God is going after a bride, he's interested in a body, and he's building a, a building. 
And you kind of see these uh, threads or these themes weaving all the way through Scripture, right? You have this bridal language that is just affluent in Scripture. You have this body language that he's, he's choosing this group of people, and it's not just this random group of people. It's actually it's his presence to the world, right? We see that in Israel. We certainly see that in the, New, in, in the New Testament with the church, that there's this body thing, that we are his body. And all throughout Scripture, there's this undertone or this, there's this theme of a building, right? In the Old Testament, we had a tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle all about? Well, the tabernacle was the, the place of the very presence of God, right? That eventually, when it was moved to Jerusalem, was, was built into an actual temple, you know, that began to sh- shift and you just start, start to see this thing that we are now the building. That what started as a tabernacle and then a, a temple, we as the body of Christ have become that building. So again, you have these interesting themes that weave themselves all through Scripture. A building is certainly one of those. And so I think it's interesting that in our passage, Paul is saying <clears throat> that here is God and he is building up a building. So really quick to do a quick building inspection, uh, since that's what you're supposed to do every time you get to a building, right, is to have an inspection. At least that's what I keep being told. Uh, When we do a quick inspection on this building that God is building up, it's interesting to me that this building is not finished. It says it's growing. It's actually maturing. Now, obviously, there is going to come a day where this building is completely finished, and it's done, and it's it's been completed. But when, when you look at the end of verse 21, this building is actually growing up into a holy temple, which means it's not completed, which is a phenomenal thought because you can get into on this thing. I'm presuming we are all in on this thing, but the world can get in on this thing. So this, this building is not a finished structure. It, this thing is growing and maturing. Uh, we know just by looking at the passage briefly that this building is a temple, uh, it is set apart for God's purposes. It's, it's for his worship. It's for his adoration. It's, it's for the sacrifice. It's, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. And then interestingly, it is actually supposed to be, verse 22, the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. So this isn't just some abstract building that, you know, it's like a second home that God will visit on occasion. This is like, this is where his presence dwells. Now, as you look actually at the passage itself, I, I love to actually walk backwards if that's possible. Uh, I want to start with this idea of tightly framed together, which is at the end of verse 21, that this building is tightly framed together. Uh, Some translations say joined together. Uh, Some translations say built up together, that that kind of language. It's interesting, that word, tightly framed together, it only shows up two times in the entire New Testament. Both of them are in Ephesians, which just kind of delights me. Uh, I think that's kind of neat. And the word, when you look at this word, tightly framed together, uh, it, it's, it's an interesting word in the sense that it's actually three Greek words put together. Uh, there's a prefix to the word uh, where we, it's the, it's the word where we get the word like symphony from. It's the same prefix for symphony. It's this idea, it's, it's a joining together for a common purpose. Uh, it, it's this prefix meaning togetherness. It, it's that kind of an idea, this word soon. Uh, there's this, the other word is harmos, uh, which is a joint or a binding. For example, your body has joints. Right? It's, it's that kind of an idea. And then the third word is lego, which is, uh, right, logos. It's, it's that kind of idea, but it's this idea of speaking. It's the idea of words. But what's interesting is that word lego can also mean this idea of picking and choosing. And really the picture is, uh, this morning I need to come up with some language to describe this passage. So what am I doing? 
Well, I'm going in my mind and I'm picking and choosing <clears throat> some words to put together and hopefully string them in an intelligent sentence. That's questionable. But put them into a sentence so that I can articulate what's going on in this passage. And that's kind of this idea. So when you put all this together, what you kind of have is this together jointedness, which is all about togetherness, and picking and choosing. And so what's interesting is, and it actually makes sense in the context of a building, that here is a building and what's happening in the building. Well, it is being tightly framed together. It is being put together. All the joints are coming in togetherness. But maybe if you want even a better picture, the building that Paul is talking about, I don't think is made out of bricks. And the reason I would say that is, is you're not a brick. <laughs> well, maybe most of you aren't bricks. <clears throat> in other words, when you look at a brick, bricks are manufactured. They're all identical. Uh, they, they're, all, they're all perfect in that sense. That's not us. I, no, no offense to you, but you are not manufactured. And you are definitely not perfect. And, and you have some rough edges. If anything, these, we're talking stones, which actually in this culture would make sense, right? All over Israel, right, which is Paul's understanding, all, all over the Middle Eastern region, you have, you have tons of rock. And so when they would often build buildings, they would just take these stones that are already on the ground and they would fit them together in, into a building. And so, of course, if you go to, go to Israel today and you look at the ancient houses, none of them were built out of wood. Why? Because wood was scarce. You don't, you're not going to tear down your few trees just so you can build some houses. So what do you do? Well, rocks are plentiful. And so you go and, you, and you're like, okay, I need a rock. And I need about this big and about this size. And so you find one. Oh, there's one. And you, and you go and you put it in the spot it's supposed to go. Well, now I need a little tiny rock to put next to that one. And, and it seems like the imagery that Paul is using is this idea of building up this building, but it's made of these stones. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone build like a rock wall or a rock facade thing. It's interesting. They have all these rocks on the ground, and it's like they, they're intentional about which ones they pick. They can't just say, well, hand me a rock, and I'll just throw it in somewhere. It's, they're looking for certain sizes and dimensions and colors and, and shapes and all that kind of stuff. Why? Because if they're actually going to fit this wall or fit this building together in a cohesive sense, well, I need a certain rock, I need a certain size, and I need a certain look, and I, all that stuff is played into this. And it's neat that every single rock is an individual. Every single rock is unique. Every single rock has weird quirks to it. That seems to describe us far better than a brick, doesn't it? And I love this picture that, again, it's not manufactured stuff. It's not, it's, it's that here's this master builder who grabs this rock and goes, oh, that's the perfect size and sort of the perfect shape. And he comes over and he puts it in the wall and he notices, oh, you know what? That's the great, I mean, that's a perfect rock for that spot. But... There's this corner edge on this rock that's going to have to be shaved down so it fits perfectly in this building. And I don't know about you, but I actually think that's what God constantly does in our lives. That he's building us up into a building. It's a holy temple. And hey, we're all unique. So he comes and he finds this perfect stone and it's this perfect shape and it's, it's oh, exactly what I need. It has quirks to it. So I'm not saying you're perfect. You have weird quirks. But it's the perfect thing that he needs for his temple. And so he grabs you and he comes over to the wall and he puts you there and he goes, oh, that's great, except I'm going to have to do some sanctification in your life and kind of 
take some sandpaper or whatever it is, you know, a little rock chipper thing, and, and break that little corner off so that it actually fits with the rest of the rocks. And there's something interesting about community, especially in the church, that the moment you put a few people together, we start rubbing on each other. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> and we should do it with graciousness and with love. And, but the reality is, is that we need to be sanctified by each other. Uh, this is a great week to ponder this because this week is Thanksgiving, which is what? This is the week where we get to spend time with friends and family. And I know no other group on, in all the world who knows how to sanctify you like friends and family. I mean, you know, the world can sanctify us. That's true. But the world doesn't know how to push my buttons. I'm very gracious with the world. But hey, if you get really close to my life, it's like God somehow gives you the secret code of my life. And it's like, I've got, I've got people in my life who just know the buttons. They just go boop, 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 and they hit enter. And it's like, ah, what is, I mean, it's like, what is going on? I'm like, Lord, what's, what is this? It's community stuff. And there's actually a beauty, a beauty in the community where God is using us to, to rub some of those corners off so that we can be perfectly fitted together in this growing up temple thing. I think it's a beautiful picture of the reality of this. And so here is Here's Paul. He says, do you, know, do you know what God is doing? God is the master builder. And it's, again, it's interesting in this passage, and you can't get out of this, God is the one doing the building. So we're not doing the building. The apostles and prophets aren't doing the building. God is the one building this building. And then he's the one going over, and he's grabbing you, and he says, oh, I've got a perfect place for you. And again, this language, he doesn't use rocks, but he uses this language, Paul does, all throughout his epistles. Right? He says, hey, how we are part of the body of Christ. We're not all the same part, right? Some of you get to be mouths. Some of you get to be hands. Some of you get to be the belly button. I mean, we all, some of us are just, the, you know, the lint in the belly button. But, you know, there, each of us have a role, right? Each of us have a very unique calling. We can't all be the exact same rock, right? We're not all the same function in the body of Christ. And that's actually a good thing. So here is, here again, here's the master builder. He's putting you into the, this temple, which is being grown up, right? And the, and the longer God tarries, as long, you know, as long as Christ doesn't return, this building actually is getting bigger. Why? Because more and more people are getting in and accepting Jesus. And as, and as they embrace Jesus as their Lord, they are becoming a part of this temple thing, which I just, I just love this imagery. So Paul says you are being tightly framed together or you're being perfectly fitted together, that you are harmoniously being jointed together with the other believers. It's, it's that idea. And by the way, if you want where the other term, uh, where the same word tightly fitted together shows up, it's Ephesians 4.16, which Paul says, uh, for whom the whole body joined, that's our word, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And again, it's going back to this idea that God has given some to be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and, and, he, and he's growing up the body of Christ and they are harmoniously being fitted together, which is this idea. I think it's interesting. Uh, now it says that <clears throat> uh, in verse 20, that we are being built together, we're being framed, harmoniously put together, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, again, I, I want to overstress this idea, but God is the one building this building. 
And again, if you get into the Greek, which we're not going to do this, but if you get into the Greek, the emphasis is on the fact that God is the one doing this. So this is not you. This is not the apostles or the prophets doing this. This is God himself building this up. But in this building, there is this foundation. And what is the foundation? Oh, it's the apostles and the prophets. So at the very bottom of this structure, of this, of this holy temple, we have the apostles and the prophets. Now you understand that a foundation is, uh, is the primary thing upon which this structure is built. That was brilliant, I know. But uh, the, the foundation determines the strength and the size of the structure. In other words, you cannot build a structure bigger than its foundation. Uh, you, you cannot have a weak foundation and build a building that's going to crush the foundation, right? None of those things work. So the foundation is the support structure. Uh, the foundation is the first thing is built. The foundation actually determines the size and the strength and the stability of the entire structure. And I think it's interesting that Paul says, do you know what our foundation is? The apostles and the prophets. Which then kind of threw me for a loop because I'm like, how on earth are the apostles and the prophets the foundation? Uh, apostles, you understand, uh, these were the guys who, if we're talking about the 12, the capital A apostles, right? These are the guys who traveled with Jesus and were testifiers or witnesses of the resurrection, right? When Judas went out and hung himself and then replacing the position of apostleship, what was the requirements? Well, you had to be with Jesus from the time of the baptism all the way through the resurrection and the ascension. That you had to see this whole thing so that you can testify of the resurrection. So somehow it wasn't just being there at the resurrection. Somehow it's, yes, I was at the resurrection, but I was there for the whole thing. And that was, was the determining factor of an apostle. And it seems like they could only find two. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, well, we have the two guys, right? And, and good Matthias won the whole thing. Acts chapter 1, you can read that later. <clears throat> so, we, and we understand that Paul was an apostle. We understand that there's these, there were these key apostles, right? So there was the 12, and then, of course, what you, whatever, whatever you want to do with Paul. Most people put him in that same category. But there's this capital A apostle idea where they were witnesses of the resurrection, which Paul was, that they were given the authority, the doctrine, if you want to use it, that language, to teach the early church. These were the witnesses that were going out saying, hey, he's alive, kind of an idea. So you had that group. Now, we know that there were other people who were apostles. And in that group, of course, you know, even in Ephesians chapter 4, right, he's given some to be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. That idea of apostle is not capital A apostle, which I think is important for our day-to-day because there are some people who call themselves apostles who think they're capital A Right, where they can rewrite scripture and they can do whatever they want to do, which I don't agree with. <clears throat> but the lowercase apostle was this idea of a messenger that would go out and proclaim the reality of Jesus Christ. Then you have this group of the prophets, and, and I, I did a bunch of study looking at some of the, the scholars would say. I could not, there are some scholars who suggest, well, maybe it's the Old Testament prophets. There are a few even who, who suggest that maybe the group apostles are the ones who are prophesying. But actually, it seems like in our passage, Paul is setting up to these two groups. He's talking about New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, we understood that prophecy was this group of people that were messengers for God who were looking into the future saying, repent, hey, come back to God. Uh, there, there were the prophets who, who were prophesying these events that were to come to showcase what God was doing. And so we, we understand that. <clears throat> 
in the New Testament, though, there is, there's still this thing called prophets, which makes some of us awkward. It's like, well, what do, you, what do you want to do with that? And what's interesting is, in prophecy, there are two elements to prophecy, right? There is the foretelling, and there's the forthtelling. Uh, there's two elements. So the foretelling is you're looking in the future, and you're saying, hey, this is about to come, right? There, it's a prophetic thing. So that, that's, an, that's an obvious element of a prophecy. But there's also the foretelling, which is the content itself. And what's interesting is, when you go into the, even in the Old Testament, the majority of what the prophets were saying was not foretelling, it was forthtelling, talking about this content, which was typically repent. Repent, 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 repent. In fact, it's interesting to me that in Revelation 19, verse 10, it says it is the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So when you get down to the very heart of prophecy itself, what do you actually, what, what do you see or what do you experience? Well, at the heart of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So really, when you look at prophecy, the, the element, the idea of prophecy, and yeah, it may contain some foretelling, but the reality of prophecy is it is a declaration of a person. And again, it's, it's a call of returning to him. So what on earth does that have to do with our passage? <laughs> well, when you look at this idea that here's this foundation, and the foundation is made up of the apostles and the prophets, what seems to be, at least as I'm understanding it, what seems, seems what Paul is saying is, well, do you know what started this whole thing? Do you know what laid the foundation for this whole thing? Do you know what all this is built upon? It is the declaration of Jesus. And they get to be the foundation because they're the ones who who got it at the very beginning, went out and began to say, you need Jesus. And as more and more people began to accept Jesus, they were being built upon something. Well, what was it? That which was already been laid by the life and the lips of the apostles and prophets. I'm not sure if that made sense. But it's like they're the ones who are proclaiming the reality, the truth of the gospel. And as you get in on that reality, you are being built upon that foundation. You're being, being built upon this foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ. And yes, the apostles and prophets are there at the foundation. But it is really important, even in the passage, the entire focus of what Paul is saying is not even so much on the apostles and prophets. I mean, he does mention the fact that, well, hey, yeah, they're the foundation. But that's actually not the focus of the building. What's the focus of the building? Oh, it's at the end of verse 20. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So if you want to know what yeah, you can go crazy with the apostles and prophet thing if you want to. But the main focus that Paul is getting at is Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In fact, you even hear the double emphasis in this. It's not Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. It is Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And there's this greater emphasis by even using the word himself in the passage. Now, when you look at this idea of a cornerstone, uh, let me just give you a short list of, of, a, of a cornerstone. Uh, the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid, right? It was usually the, bigger, the biggest of the stones. It was put right in the corner, and every other stone got their alignment and, the, and their position from the cornerstone. That's a cool thought when you put it in this context. Uh, the cornerstone was to be the focal point of the entire building. So when you, were to, when you were stepping back and looking at the entire building, there was one thing that would always draw your attention. It was the biggest stone in the building. It was the cornerstone. Uh, it was usually laid at the corner of, uh, sorry, it was usually laid at the corner to bind two walls together and to strengthen them. And the cornerstone determined the structural integrity of the building. 
And interestingly, throughout Scripture, this idea of a cornerstone was used for strength and prominence. So when you use that idea or take that idea and bring it into a passage, here is Jesus. He is the first thing that is laid. Everything is measured against him. He determines the structural integrity. He's the one that determines even the foundation. So you can't have a good foundation without the cornerstone. So everything is, is focused on the cornerstone here. So Paul says, hey, you're part of a building. Well, what's the foundation, Paul? Well, it's the apostles and prophets, the ones who were pro- proclaiming the reality of Jesus. And hey, if you did not hear them proclaim the reality of Jesus, you would never have gotten in on this thing. And it's only because you've heard that you got in on the building. So what's the foundation? It, it is those who have proclaimed and declared the realities of Jesus. But what is the, the, the chief foundation? The, what's the cornerstone? Jesus himself. And the whole building, the whole temple is focused on one thing. The whole building has one emphasis. The whole building has one strength thing. What is it? It's Jesus. Which should make sense because that's what Paul's been saying this entire time, right? It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. If you want to go crazy, go crazy for Jesus. And here he is saying, hey, there is this foundation, this cornerstone, which is Jesus. Now, this language of a cornerstone shows up all over the Old Testament. And let me just give you some passages because uh, I, just, I just love these. Uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So here's all these other builders. They were looking at the rocks and they're saying, ah, we're throwing that one away. That's not a good rock. That's not a good cornerstone. And yet God says, oh, that's my cornerstone. And what's that cornerstone prophesying? It's talking about Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone a sure foundation. Speaking of the coming Messiah. Uh, Zechariah 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might, nor by power, but, sorry, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. It's interesting, that passage uses this idea of a capstone. And a capstone was, is that final piece you put on at the very top of the building. And you're, you're capping the thing. And it's interesting that in this passage, speaking about the coming Messiah, Jesus is not only the foundation, he's also the cap. Which actually makes sense, because if he is the head of the church, he is, he's at the top. Right? He's the finished piece. He's, he's that which makes everything look beautiful. He's, he's that finishing work of the entire building. So not only is the building built upon this foundation, right, with the cornerstone being Jesus, but when this temple is finished, what's going to be at the very top? What's going to be the capstone? Jesus. So the bottom and the top is Jesus, which is just a great idea. Uh, you bring that into the New Testament, and you start hearing this echo again. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Obviously, Peter and John are talking about the man who is lame and who is healed. But then this is what Peter says. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. Obviously, using that 
passage from Psalms. Uh, Matthew verse 16, verse 18. Uh, Jesus is speaking in Matthew 16, and he says, And I say to you that you are Peter. So, so think, about, think about the context. Uh, here they are in Caesarea Philippi, and uh, Jesus is, is in the middle of this, what would be considered Las Vegas of his day. I mean, Caesarea Philippi was not just perverse, it was perverse. The stuff that they would do publicly to worship the god Pan is so twisted. I mean, it, I could not talk about it from the stage. I mean, it's, it's pornographic on so many levels. And so here in the middle, I mean, I don't know, could you imagine, here's Jesus, and he takes his disciples there. It's like not just even taking your disciples to Las Vegas. It's like taking your disciples down to like one of the strip clubs of Las Vegas. And in the middle of that arena saying, hey, I got a question for you. Who does the world say that I am? And of course, everyone's talking about, well, some say this and some say this. And, and Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, so here's what Jesus says. He says, well done, Peter. And he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now again, if you understand the context, right, just right around the corner from where, where Jesus was talking, there was a place called the gates of Hades. Right in Caesarea Philippi, there's this big rock structure, and it was known as the Gates of Hades. It was where the temple uh, to Pan was, was located. So here's all this grotesqueness happening all around, and where are they doing this all at? The Gates of Hades, which is ironic. And so here's Jesus saying, hey, Peter, well done. You know who I am. I am the Messiah, and you are Peter. So his name is Simon. Jesus changes it to Peter, which means rock. And then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, it is interesting that when Catholicism began, they took this passage and said, oh, Peter was the rock. And so then you have the line and the secession of popes coming from this whole thing. That's not what Jesus was talking about. The word Peter, Petros, means little tiny pebble. That's actually what it means. It means this little tiny, just dinky rock. But the word Petra on this rock is meaning a rock. And it's interesting when you, when you go through all, all of the Old Testament, never once is a human ever called a rock. It's only a term only referred to God. And what's amazing is, and if you understand Caesarea Philippi in the context here, here, here's this location called the Gates of Hades, but literally everything around it is one massive rock. I mean, it's, a, I mean, it's like a mountain. And really what Jesus is getting at is the fact that, hey, there is a rock that will not be moved. And what is that? It's himself. That's actually what he's referring to. He says, hey, Peter, well done. You're a little tiny stone, but upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And yeah, you get to be a piece of it, but you are not, you are not it. But again, Jesus is being referred to as the rock. He calls himself the rock. And again, you have to look at it all in terms of the context of the Caesarea Philippi in the Old Testament. But I think it's a beautiful declaration of what Jesus is saying that the church is going to be built upon a rock. Well, what rock is it? It's a chief cornerstone. It, it is a foundation thing. What is it? That's, that's him himself. Uh, in Peter, <clears throat> again, I think Peter even fleshes this out. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Peter says, Coming to Jesus as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up 
into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So it's interesting to me that even Peter says, do you know what we are? We're, we're living stones. That we're being built up into something. But what is the chief rock? Jesus. I think it's a beautiful picture of this reality. So take all of that and come back into our passage. Uh, Paul says, hey, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Hey, you're not outside this whole thing. You are a full-blown citizen. In fact, you are a family member in this thing. In fact, you are this rock and you have your work quirks and personalities and hey, God's given you talent and your person, you know, all this stuff. And God has gone over and he grabs you and he says, I got a perfect place for you. you it's going to be perfect right here. And now granted, he's probably going to have to shave some stuff off of us so that we can fit perfectly. And hey, we're all working through the sanctification process because we are not as we are or should be. And yet there is this thing being built upon this foundation. Yes, the apostles and prophets, but Jesus himself is the chief foundation stone. He, he is the fullness of this thing. He is that which everything is measured against. He, he is that which, which all the strength of the building is resting upon. So this is not resting upon you. So you can take a breath. <laughs> you're just, you get to be a part of this thing. And you are an essential part of this building. Because just like, you know, if you, if you, if you take out one rock from a wall, it is very noticeable. Hey, if you were removed, hey, this thing is going to be noticeable. You are absolutely essential to this building. I think that's really important. So a couple quick practicals. Uh, one question we can ask ourselves is, how tightly framed together are we? If, if God really is harmoniously bringing us together, how, how tightly fitted are we? A lot of us just, you know, show up to church and, you know, we know when to stand up and we know when to sit down and we know the songs, but we actually don't want to be a part of a community which is going to be miserable because, you know, all eternity is going to be community. And if we don't like community here, it's going to be miserable up there. But maybe a further question is, not just am I willing to be fitted together, but am I willing to be, or am I willing to allow things in my life to be chipped off and to be shaved off so that I can be tightly fitted together? Again, I think a symphony is a beautiful picture of this whole thing. Uh, when, when you look at a symphony, you have, you have all these different instruments. And not everyone's a tuba, praise the Lord. Right? Not, not everyone is the kazoo, praise the Lord. Right? Not everyone is the recorder, praise the Lord. Right? Not everyone is the flute, and not everyone is the you know, cello, and not everyone's the... But somehow, when all of these instruments come together into a symphony, and they're tightly fitted together, there is one song. There, there is one declaration. There is, there is one thing being demonstrated. And wouldn't it be neat if we were a symphony as the Church of Christ? That as we were all being perfectly, harmoniously fitted together in this building, it's like there is one song being demonstrated, which is the cornerstone. That there's one thing being declared through our lives, it's the capstone. That there's one thing that's being showcased, which is Him. Because, again, this is a dwelling place of God through the Spirit. So are we tightly fitted together? Are we willing to be shaved and, and things in our lives to be changed and transformed so that we can look more like Jesus and so we can be more tightly fitted together? But maybe another question we can ask ourselves is, what is our foundation? 
and I know that so many of us are so quick to be like, oh, it's Jesus. But is that, is that the reality? Is that actually what our surety is? is? Is our true foundation, what we put our hope and our trust in, is it actually Jesus? Or do we just say it is? Uh, COVID strikes, and most people were proven that their hope and their foundation was not Jesus. I think so, time, so many times in a church, we're quick to say, ah, it's all Jesus. But then our lives actually don't declare that reality. So what would it look like if Jesus Christ actually was our foundation? That there was this solid rock upon which we stand. Right, I, love, I love that old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is true. Uh, Jesus was giving me a series of talks and messages and sermons. And at the end of one of them, he says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke's account in Luke chapter 6, uh, verses 47 through 49, Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house. Oh, there's our house building thing again. Who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against the house, it could not be shaken because it had been well built. Isn't it interesting that a building built upon a sure foundation, the winds and rains may come, but it is stable. Why? Because of a foundation. But Jesus says, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin in the house was great. And Jesus actually is referring to the wadis of Israel. And we're out in the desert, right? It doesn't get much rain, but there's these flash floods that come. And it's interesting, whenever the flash floods come, even to this day, they close down all the roads. Because there's been school buses that have been picked up and thrown. And I mean, there's, I mean it's a massive uh, flash flood. And so these flash floods will come down from the mountains, and this huge amount of water will push everything away. And Jesus says, you know, it'd actually be a lot easier if you just go down into the middle of these wadis, these, these floodplains, and build your house on there. It's downward sloping. You have all this stuff down there, right? You have all this debris. So it'd be easy to actually build your house there. The problem is, when we get a flash flood, it's not going to be there. So yeah, it's going to take a little bit more work. You're going to have to climb up the hillside and build it up on the top, but there's a sure foundation. It's, it's a rock. And if you build there, when the flash floods come, yeah, the water may, may hit it once in a while, but you're going to be stable. Wouldn't it be interesting in our personal lives? I understand we're just one rock in this whole building, but wouldn't it be interesting in our personal lives that the stability and the strength of our lives is built upon a rock foundation? It's Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. We need that. And perhaps of all the seasons of life that we need it, this is that kind of a season. Because there are winds and the waves that are just they're beating against our lives. And if we are not built upon a sure foundation and understand that Jesus is our chief cornerstone, corporately as well as individually, then we will be thrown, we will be thrown down. We will not make it. He is our foundation. We need that. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do thank you that you are our chief cornerstone. Lord, thank you that you are the firmness of our foundation. And thank you that we are built upon the apostles and the prophets and all that they've taught and lived. But you, O oh Lord, are our chief foundation. 
You are our strong tower. You are our rock of refuge. You are our hiding place. You are our sure foundation. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of having full citizenship in the kingdom of God. Lord, thank you that we're not just assigned to some mere servant duties, but we get to sit down at the table as sons and daughters of the king. And Lord, thank you that we are a part of this building that is ever-growing. Lord, what if we would have a passion for a, for a bigger building? That somehow we would look at the world around us and we would, we would desperately want them a part of this building. Lord, would you give us as your body a desire to see Christ built up in this world? That Christ would be more magnified and glorified that there would be a hunger and thirst within us that we would desire to see other rocks who are not yet a part of the building and say, you've got to get in on this thing. But Lord, those of us who are in the building as a part of the building, Lord, could we freshly consecrate ourselves, surrender ourselves to you today and say, Lord, would you, will you continue your sanctification process in our lives? Would you continue to shave off those corners and edges so that we could be perfectly fitted together with your bride, the church? And Lord, what an amazing privilege to realize that we get to be the dwelling place of God. And so Lord, we just set our lives afresh in your hands and ask for a great movement, uh, change, transformation by your Spirit in our lives. And Lord, will you not let us waver? Will you not let us be built upon sinking sands? Would you truly be the solid rock upon which we stand? Would you be our hope? Would you be our righteousness? Would you be our surety? And may the foundation of each of our personal lives be built upon this same cornerstone. Lord, would you be our strength? Would you be that which our lives are measured against? Would you be the focal point of who we are? Would you be the strength of this whole thing? Lord, would you truly be the cornerstone of our lives? That which is seen and highlighted to the world. Lord, what a privilege we have to be a part of your building, your body, your bride. And so, Lord, we just want to worship you and just give you the praise and the adoration which you rightly deserve today. In your precious, holy, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.